The Apostle Peter wrote two books that bear his name, First and Second Peter. And when he concluded that last letter, he did with these words. He said, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, he concluded his two letters. Those people were going through extremely rough times and worse times than even that was going to come upon them. And that's how he concluded, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, God tells us in the scriptures that this life we have here on the earth is but a vapor. Really, just a breath, you see a vapor and it's gone. And I think you're beginning to, in fact, the older you get, the more you realize that, isn't it true? You say, wow, time is just rushing along like crazy. I mean, where does it all go? How did I get this age? And, of course, if you're not this age, you know what's going to happen. You know, you're not around anymore. But, but you, you ask those questions more and more. Like I said recently, when I opened up the paper, I look at the obituary page to see how old they were when they went, you know, and see, well, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm getting close to that time, aren't, am I not? So it's but a vapor, he says. But when you became a Christian, God gave you real, wonderful meaning and purpose to your life. Amen? That's right. No one has the purpose and the meaning to their life like the Christian. And only the Christian has that. And God says, look, I want you then in this life I've given to you, and we've been talking about that life, to grow in that grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But let's give some serious thought to that for a moment. Just thinking about that. Where are you in your Christian life? Now think about how long you've been saved. Some of you recently, maybe some of you not at all yet. And others of you, you can say, well, uh, I've been saved for years and years. My question, or God the Holy Spirit's question to you and to me is, where are you in your Christian life? After all, you've got saved, you moved along here, hopefully. Here's where you are right now. Where are you right now in your growth with the Lord? Would you say you have grown spiritually? That's a very valid question that we need to ask ourselves. Have I grown spiritually? Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you loving Him more? Are you walking closer with Him this year than last year? Can you say with the songwriter, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows? Because he wants us to be able to say that. That's the way it ought to be for us. Or are you still doing the same old things that you did years ago and really you say, you know what? Not a whole lot has changed. And by the way, that's true of multitudes of Christians. And that's why in church you need to have a series on come grow with me and say, okay, help me, Lord. Help me. I really, I'm, I'm bound up here. I'm struggling. Help me to grow because I really do want that in my life. Well, let me ask those questions in a different way. If God could change three things in your life, Just three things. He comes to you, says, I want to have a talk with you. I want to change three things in your life. What would those three things be? You say, now, preacher, you've gone to meddling. Yeah, you're right. But it really brings it home in a different way, doesn't it? Thinking about, okay, that makes me think, okay, what am I still dealing with? I should no longer be dealing with. I should be getting victory over and so forth. 
But maybe now we're getting somewhere. Are those three things the same three things they were several years ago? And you need to ask that honestly, straightforward. I mean, just have to be able to, okay, Lord, you know what? You're right. They're still there, still struggling, still faltering and failing. But let me ask you another question. Do you want to grow in your Christian life? Maybe some people really don't want to grow. So do you want to grow? Remember, your life is a vapor. That's all it is. Just gone. Just a breath. So do you want to grow in your Christian life? I mean, do you really, really want to grow? Listen, that is clearly, that is clearly God's plan for your life if you're a Christian. One he has redeemed, or one of his redeemed children. And when you and I look back to when we got saved and see what God did for us the split instant we got saved. And you look at those things. Maybe you've never thought of them before. Maybe nobody's ever brought them up before. You read the Bible and just kind of, kind of flow through that and miss it all together. But when you see what God did for you back there, the moment you got saved, I'll tell you what, God the Holy Spirit uses that in your and my life to motivate us, to prod us, to grow, to keep in step with Him. Well, we spent the last two Sundays, or I mean two Sundays, looking back to when you got saved and seeing what God did the moment you got saved. And this morning we're going to go look back one more time. By the way, we're still not covering all of them. I'm not going to do that, but at least we get a good sampling and a good flavor of them. And this morning we're going to look back one more time. I'm not going to spend time reviewing the 14 uh, things that we already talked about those last two Sundays. You can get those by uh, ordering a CD or else you can go online to the church web pages there, the front of the bulletin, and you can uh, get the message there and listen to it online if you want. But we've seen that God did some amazing, amazing things the moment we got saved. And when we knew, when, when we know these things, rather, we find God motivating us, moving in our heart to say, I want to grow. I really do, Lord, want to grow. We find ourselves desiring to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's always an interesting part. We'll see that some other time. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's beautiful. God says, hey, you're mine. I'm faithfully working, causing you to grow. Now will you work with me in that effort? So we begin once again in our outlines with our main point. So if you got your outline there, you can pull it out. I know some of you got photographic memories. You'll never forget a thing that was said here. You don't have to write anything down. Wonderful. I don't fit in that category, okay? So get your outline out if you would and fill it out. We begin with that main point, the greatness of your salvation. What God did for you when you got saved. That's what we've been talking about, the greatness. It is so great. Really, beyond comprehension, but it's so great what God did. Now, we're looking back. We're looking back now. At the moment you got saved, God did several things immediately in your life. The moment you got saved, the greatness of your salvation. We're looking at the past tense, what God did for you when you got saved. Number 15 in your outline. So you say, what happened to 14? Well, you have to go back and get that online. Okay? When God saved you, he made you a partaker of a holy and royal priesthood. 
When God saved you, he made you a partaker of a holy and royal priesthood. A couple of passages out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. If I use my Bible, usually what I do is I type out those words in my notes, but if I use my Bible, it gives you a chance maybe to go there too. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Peter writes, You also, to these believers... Therefore, to you and me as well, as living stones. I couldn't help but think about Stonehenge and the marvel and wonder of that. And he says, no, this is way beyond that. You are living stones. Are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Go down to verses 9 and 10. Of First Peter 2. And you'll have to write these verses down if you want them in your notes. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. What does he say? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you get what he said there? What God did the moment you got saved, you became a partaker of a holy and a royal priesthood. Let me add Revelation 1, 6. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. And he, that's Jesus Christ, has made us a kingdom. The King James says, king. He's made us a king or kings and priests to his God and Father. You'll notice again, it's all in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is what? Both king and priest, right? Zechariah talks about two offices. He is king and priest, and because of him, every believer immediately derives all his possessions and his positions from him. So the moment God saved you, he bestowed upon you two very great positions. First of all, as a priest. As a priest. We right now have complete access to God. Isn't that amazing? The rest of the world talks about God if they say they believe in God at all, okay? He's, they say, the man upstairs. Or they believe in all kinds of deities or whatever, their own self-made creations. But you and I, we know the one true God, and we have direct access to him because we are priests in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the high priest. Complete access to God, and we have the great joy of knowing Him and serving Him and worshiping Him, do we not? We offer up the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. What a, what a joy. The world's mumbling and stumbling around here. Here we have, we offer up this praises of sacrifices and thanksgiving. Or, or pray, uh, sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Sorry. Think about the great privilege of actually knowing God and being encouraged and welcomed by Him to come into His very presence at any time and at all times. Think about the great honor and joy of serving Him. But He said, it didn't stop there. I didn't just make you a priest that has direct access to me and I want you to come all the time and any time you want and desire. But He also made us kings. A kingdom. Amazing. He says a, we read it, a royal priesthood. That's different. That speaks of regality. It speaks of kingliness. 
though bestowed upon us by God back when we got, he saved us, it really looks more to our future reign with our Lord and Savior, but it doesn't negate who you are. You are one of his royal servants, if you please. He looks back, though, or looks to our future reign with our Lord and Savior when he comes back and sets up his kingdom and reigns supreme over all the world. See, when you were born again, when you were born again, you were born into royalty. The moment you got saved, born into royalty, you are royalty. How does that affect how you live your life right now? You see why this is so important to gather what God did back then when you first got saved? How does it affect how I live my life? This little vapor he gives me, and, and maybe you moved along and you were 80 when you got saved. Okay, from that point on, you became royalty. Or maybe at 8 you got saved. And from that point on, you became royalty. How does it affect how you choose to live your life? Since it's God who is at work in you, causing you to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is amazing stuff to me. Very soon you're going to come out of obscurity and begin your reign with King Jesus, your Savior and Lord. Live now in light of that great truth. Listen, don't throw away the work of God in your life, and He's always faithfully there working. No matter what it is you find yourself going through. Well, number 16. When God saved you, this is back there the moment you got saved. He made you a heavenly citizen. (laughs) A heavenly citizen. Luke 10 verse 20. I'm going to turn there so you have a chance to do that as well. Although we have one that's probably putting it on the board right behind me. See, so you say, why should I turn there? He's, He's good. That guy's he's good back there. Luke 10 verse 20. I always like the rustle of the leaves of your Bibles. Glad you brought it. Jesus said to his disciples, they're so excited because they'd gone out and they'd cast out demons and, and uh, had such power. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. They're heavenly citizens. Rejoice in that. What does it say in Revelation 20:15? And whoever, and this is all the masses of people from Adam that, got, that were unsaved all the way to the very last person born, whoever was not found written in the book of life was thrown or cast into the lake of fire. What an amazing thing that your name is found there if you've asked Jesus into your heart. He said, you became the moment you got saved a citizen of heaven. A heavenly citizen, if you please. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. I mean, he's talking about you and me. Say, we've we've already come there. This is not future. You've come there. The heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The moment you got saved, who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I think that spirits of the righteous made perfect are people that are Christians who've died and gone home to be with the Lord. Philippians 3.20 You should know that one. 
Philippians 3, verse 20. Great verse. For our citizenship is in heaven. I'm a citizen of the United States, but you know I have a much more valuable, precious, wonderful citizenship, and that is, it's in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? If you and I are growing in this Christian walk, if we're loving the Word, spending time in the Word, spending time with the Savior, seeking to live your life for Him, walking with Him, you are growing and you're in love with Him, and guess what? You are eagerly looking forward. Now, there's something in me that says, I don't feel worthy of that. Amen, right? That's amen. I don't, you don't feel worthy of it either. Makes you kind of a little bit nervous about the fact that He could come back right now. I know that. And yet, guess what? That old sin nature is going to be gone and uh, you're going to be perfected. And what a glory to be. And to see the fulfillment of this which he began in you. And he says, you're a citizen of heaven and you eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, that's a growing person. That is a growing person when you see somebody that's eagerly waiting for the coming of the Lord, not just because they want to get out of a whole bunch of trouble or problems or they're getting old and wore out. Now, that's one reason I think God allows that just because he says, look, I want you to realize there's something way, 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 way better than this for you. And I've got to prepare. And you say, yes, I want it now. I'm sure as we get older, that's true. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, it says, Paul lets us know that our actual presence in heaven is an assured experience for all who are saved. He says there in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body. And what's the rest of it? (coughs) To be at home. Oh, to be at home with the Lord. In one sense, to remain here after possessing citizenship in heaven creates a peculiar situation. I think you understand that. So much so that God describes us as being aliens and strangers. We are just like Abraham who received those promises. Having welcomed them from a distance, he confessed he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. And so are we who are citizens of heaven. We feel the same way. But because we are citizens of heaven... We're also said to be ambassadors for Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.20. To remain here as a witness, a stranger, a pilgrim, an ambassador, is but a momentary experience. But our heavenly citizenship that we already possess will be enjoyed forever. What a day it's going to be. And he says, I just want you to get a flavor of what I did for you the moment I saved you the moment you were born into my family. It was all done then. Boy, when you get a hold of it, it says, you know what? This is not something you don't want to throw away. This is something you want to grow in and mature in and please the Lord and prepare for this wonderful journey. That brings us next to 17. When God saved you, he made you his family and household. He made you his family And his household. Not only did God immediately make you a citizen of heaven the moment he saved you. That's great to be a citizen of heaven. You'd have to say amen to that. But, he said, I went way beyond that. I made you part of my family, my household. You remember, some of you older folks, some of you younger may not remember it. But the Gaithers, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by the blood. 
joint heirs with Jesus as I travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. And then the second verse says, from the door of an orphanage to the house of the king. Isn't that great? From an orphanage to the house of the king. No longer an outcast, a new song I sing, from rags unto riches, from the weak to the strong. I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God. What? I belong. That was a mumble. You know that better. I belong. Say it. I belong. Amen. Amen. The moment God saved you, he bestowed upon you two very great, I'm sorry, page two. (laughs) There are various fatherhood relations that God sustains, but none is so perfect and enriching or so enduring as his being your heavenly father. As I said, the world talks about God in some major, some way. But we have gone way beyond that. We are family, and He is your and my Heavenly Father because He made you His family and His household. Ephesians 2.19. Paul says, Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You are of God's household. You know, we're a very unique family, and he says we have family responsibilities, doesn't he? Because we're family one to another who are redeemed as well. There's a, a union the Bible talks about. How God made us one in Christ and one together in Christ. And in Galatians 6.10, he says, here's the response of that being part of the family of God. Galatians 6.10 So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Especially to those who are the household of faith. But how might this wonderful position that God gave to you the moment you got saved motivate you to grow, to serve Him, to bear much fruit? I want you this time to turn in your Bibles. In fact, if you don't put it up there, it'll be okay this time. Because I'll have it. Well, first let them turn to it. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Don't miss this one. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'll read it and then Craig can put it on the wall behind me after that. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. How might this position that you are of God's family, his household, the moment you got saved, motivate you to grow in this grace and knowledge with the Lord? Well, 2 Corinthians 2, I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. 2 Timothy, did I say the wrong one? 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. Here's what it says. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, that's set apart to God, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Interesting, in a large house, when you had guests over, you put out your best silverware, best plateware. That's the point here. If it's some menial situation, like taking out the garbage, you used old-type pottery and so forth. This large house Paul is referring to is God's household. Oh, 
Follow with me now. Think that through. This large house is God's household. It is a redeemed church, the body of Christ, composed of all true believers. The gold and silver vessels represent honorable believers, and the vessels of wood and of earthenware represent the dishonorable believers. You need to know that in the context of Second Timothy chapter 2, the dishonorable vessels described as wood and earthenware are not unsaved people. If you do, you're going to throw that away. You're going to miss completely what God is saying to you and to me. He's not talking about unsaved people. He's talking about his household. And so, whether it be gold and silver or wood and earthenware, he's talking about believers. Every one of these are a reference to believers. They refer to genuinely saved people. John MacArthur writes, because I went to search it out there. I want to be sure of this point. I believe that's the case, but I want to be sure of it. And I looked at different commentaries, and he's one I can rely on here. He says, the honorable vessels represent believers who are faithful and useful to the Lord. They are the good soldiers, the competitive athletes, the hardworking farmers mentioned in verses 3 through 6. By contrast, the dishonorable vessels are the cowardly soldiers, the lazy athletes, and the slothful farmers, defiled people fit only for the most menial, undistinguished purposes. Honor and dishonor therefore refer to the ways in which genuine believers are found useful to the Lord in fulfilling the work to which he has called them. But you need to be thankful along with me for verse 21. Look at verse 21. Now you can put it on the board if you would. Thank you. Verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, what's he saying? God is saying, look, you are my household. You are your family. I want you to be a vessel of honor, and you can be that. Isn't that great? You can be that. And he tells you how. He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And then at verse 22, he says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I like those two words, and you ought to underline them, those two verbs. Flee, pursue. Not good? Pretty strong. Flee, but pursue. I'm thankful for verse 21 that helps says, God says, Bill, you can be a vessel of honor. I put that back into your hands. You have to decide what kind of a vessel. Do you want to grow with me? And uh, I don't have as much time probably to grow as you do because I'm older than a number of you anyway. Some of you are older than me, but, but I don't have as much time. But the point is, I want to grow, and that's why this series, and I hope you want to grow, and we all can grow until God calls us home. Amen? Nobody's arrived yet unless I've had their funeral. There. Okay. All right. Number 18. When God saved you, he placed you in a heavenly association with Christ. Now, this is a bigger thing here to try to get a hold of. When God saved you, he placed you in a heavenly association in Christ. I wish, or with Christ. I wish I could say it differently. Let me quote here Lewis Sperry Chafer. He writes, What is termed the heavenly places is a phrase which is peculiar to the Ephesian letter and has no reference to heaven as a place or to specific places of spiritual privilege here on the earth. But it does refer to the present realm of association with Christ. 
which association is the inherent right of all those who are in Christ Jesus. End of quote. How exactly is this association, or I call it partnership, with Christ explained? Here we go on your outline. How is it explained, this association? First of all, as partners with Christ in life. Do you have eternal life? I'm going to have you wake up and raise your hand if you have, you say, if you know you have eternal life, raise your hand. If you know you have eternal life, raise your hand, okay? What is that life? Two words. Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, the life, right? That's what he said. In fact, in Colossians 3 verse 4, he says that uh, you partake in a new life and that life is the indwelling Christ. And then the apostle John wrote in 1 John 5.11, 1 John 5.11, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. So that's an association I have with him. He's in me, I'm in him. I have life because he is life. But number two, as partners with Christ in position. This all happened the moment we got saved. You have a partnership with Christ in position. Ephesians 2, 6 says, God raised us up with him, that's Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is a partnership, a position with Christ that is real. God declares, I am seated with his son in the heavenly places. Listen, they could take you, they could torture you, they could take your life. They could put you in prison, they could take your life, but they could never change this position. I'm still in Christ. In fact, if they take my life instantly, Where am I? With him. God says, it's so real. And I gave you that the split second I saved you. I placed you in Christ. He's in heaven. He says, I see you as being there as well. Number three is partners with Christ in service. And I love this one. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 9 with me, if you'll turn back there. Because this really is the... uh, bookends of this book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 9 being the first part there. What does God say? 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Called into fellowship. That word koinonia is also translated partnership. He said, we have communion with each other and we are partners together. And what's the other book in? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, almost at the end of, the, of uh, his discourse in that book. Therefore, my beloved brethren, and you can put it, change that word if you want to partner. Therefore, my beloved brethren, my beloved partner, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor or your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Isn't that great? Two bookends there. For the whole book of 1 Corinthians, I made you my partner in my son. And I will reward that partnership as you continue to faithfully serve me. So we're partners with Christ in service. Number four, as partners with Christ in suffering. Oh, don't like that one. <laughs> partners with Christ in suffering. Philippians 1.29 Paul says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. If you're a Christian, he says, all that live godly will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. 
Back to that book, First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree, listen, but to the degree that you share, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Partners with Christ in suffering. No wonder Paul states his testimony in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and that in my flesh I do my share on behalf of the, his body, which is the church, here it is, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What's he saying? I suffer with Christ. I suffer with Christ. If he were here, they would take it out on him if they could. Of course, when he comes back in power and glory, they won't be able to do that. But he's not here. Yes, he is. He's here in you and me, and we're one with him. And so they take it out upon us, and that's how we participate in his sufferings. Number five, as partners with Christ in prayer, this association with Christ, uh, partners with Christ in prayer. The very fact that you and I are told to pray in Jesus' name shows us this is true. In John fourteen twelve through 14, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do he will do also, and greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, there it is, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Partners with Christ in prayer. You know, that makes sense then. We ought to be people who do a lot of praying. Just walking with Him, communing with Him in the Word, and He speaks to our heart, and we open our heart in prayer back to Him. Just your whole life should be a life of prayer in that sense, shouldn't it? Number six, as partners in betrothal. That means a marriage that's going to take place. Paul mentioned that in 2 Corinthians eleven two. He said, I have betrothed you to one as a pure virgin. Every believer makes up the church, the called out ones, that is. And the church is espoused as a bride to Christ. When the Lord returns, our marriage will take place as he receives her unto himself. The moment God saved you, get that, the moment God saved you, he betrothed you to his son. This amazing truth giving us the most glorious position and yet to be experienced in fullest measure. Think about it. You are betrothed to the Son of God, and when he comes back, that marriage is going to take place. It's incredible. Then why would I want to live for self now? Why would I not want to give effort, some diligence, to growing in this relationship with him? And number seven, finally, as partners in expectation. Kind of caught that in Philippians 3.20, but partners in expectation. Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the expectation of every Christian who knows God's word. Christ's appearing will be the moment of our release from our limitations into the fullness of his glory. We will finally be free of our sin, 
that sin nature, and we will see and forever be in the presence of the Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it will be glory. It will be glory. But listen, Christ is also our partner in this expectation. We're partners with him. Listen to John 17, 24. John 17, 24. Father, he's praying here. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Are you saved? Okay, we're going to have an evangelistic service here. (laughs) I know most of you are saved. Listen, that is the desire of your Savior, your God, your Lord. Isn't that great? His desire is that you would be with him. He longs to have you, the bride, home. What glory. I mean, this is the greatest wedding you could ever go to. Because you're the bride. And he is your groom. Wow, you get this? And God says, I did that. The split second you got saved, I betrothed you to my son. Amazing. Wonderful. Number 19. And that's our his expectation and ours, by the way. Number 7. Number 19. When God saved you, he gave you the inheritance of the saints. Momently, just, I mean, the moment you got saved, he gave you the inheritance of the saints. Your inheritance is God himself and all that he bestows. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Isn't that good? He doesn't just save you out of hell and get you into heaven, and I'm glad for that. Oh, it's way beyond that. He has saved you for glorious purposes that you get to invest in with him. He said, I've got an inheritance for you, and it's reserved in heaven for you. Having been born again, the indwelling Holy Spirit causes us to experience the earnest of this and taste this inheritance. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.14, Ephesians 1.14, that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. There it is. I have the Holy Spirit in me. No wonder he wants me to connect with the word. To discover these wonderful truths, he has given as a pledge of our inheritance, it says, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. In Colossians 3, verse 24, Paul writes, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward, the reward, Oh, the Bible talks about reward, the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Just a little insight about your inheritance. In Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus said this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But it goes beyond that. That's the kingdom. (laughs) 
But God says, I don't stop there. I don't stop there. It goes way, way beyond that. We get to Revelation 21. John saw the new heaven and the new earth. He saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a, as a satellite city there. And here's what God said. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. It goes way beyond just the reign of Christ. It goes into the eternal state, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. He says, it's all yours. All the things that God has prepared for us. And he says, I gave them to you the moment I saved you back there when you put your faith in Jesus. And we're born into my family. Amazing. You know, well, let me use Acts 20, 32. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Paul prays for the Ephesian elders. Here's his prayer. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. What's that? Growth. Growing. The word is able to build you up. That's growth. And give you the inheritance. Give it. You don't earn it. Give it. Among all those who are sanctified. There's that word sanctified again. Living a holy life unto God. You know, God is presently allowing the God of this world to control the world, isn't he? It's his world system. Boy, if you don't believe that, you need to look at the Bible and look at the world, okay? It's his world system right now. God's allowing that, but God's not not being defeated. He's still on his throne. He's accomplishing his purpose. He knows exactly where we are, what he's doing, and he'll fulfill his purpose. But the God of this world is an interesting being because he likes to give to the people he wants to possess and control. He'll give them glory. You want some power? If he thinks he can put you in a place of power and use you, he'll give you power. Unlimited, amazing power. Maybe you're the one, he says, you know, you've got good looks. You're handsome. You're beautiful. I could use you. And boy, could I give you the inheritance. I'll make you popular. You ought to pursue that. You ought to ruin yourself for me. But I'll make you popular. I'll make you famous. I'll have the world of people flocking at your doors, going after you and so forth. It's, I can do all that. I can give you that power. I can give you that popularity. I can give you the glory and wealth and so forth. And we can go on and on what he offers. But I'll tell you what, he'll never be outdone by God. Amen? Why? Because this is all perishing. It's going to be burnt up. Revelation. But God says, I've got that which is eternal, and it's going to be way beyond what you see here on this temporary earth. It pays to serve Jesus. It pays to know him. It pays to be saved and belong to him. It pays to walk with him. It pays to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One more. These aren't all of them, but one more. As we look back. Number 20, when God saved you, he vitally, vitally united you to himself, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've seen this if you've been reading your Bible at all. When God saved you, he vitally, vitally united you to himself, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me quote Chafer again here, his systematic theology. He says, as perplexing as it may be to the human mind, the Scriptures advance six distinct revelations 
regarding relationships between the Godhead and the believer. And these relationships represent realities which find no comparisons in the sphere of human intercourse. End of quote. Here are those six distinct relationships. Number one, you as a believer are in God the Father. And I'm going to be very quickly here. First Thessalonians 1, 1, other scriptures, but First Thessalonians 1, 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father. But, amazing thing here, God the Father is in you, the believer. Not only are you in Him, but He is in you. Ephesians 4, 6. Ephesians 4, 6, one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Number three, you as a believer are in the Son. Distinction, you as a believer are in the Son. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the Son is in you, the believer, the Son is in you, the believer, John fourteen twenty. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. But number five, you as a believer are in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9, however you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if perhaps, or indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So I'm in the Spirit. If I'm saved. Number six, though, the Holy Spirit is in you, the believer. 1 Corinthians 2.12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Who comprehends it? I don't. But I think it's an amazing thing that God the Holy Spirit dwells in me, God the Son dwells in me, God the Father dwells in me, and that I dwell in all three of them. And he says that is a vital union that I have created the moment you got saved. For you and I to be in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is a position, isn't it? That's a position. For the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to be in you and me speaks of possession. So my being in them is position. They being in me is possession. What impacts you this great truth that all three members of the Trinity dwell in me and you dwell in them? What should that do regarding God the Father? What should this do when we think of growth? That I dwell in him, he dwells in me. Regarding him, what? Well, how about... Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is who? God. Who is at work in you, causing you to will and to work for his good pleasure. What about regarding the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? In Revelations chapter 2 and 3, he's seen walking in the midst of his churches evaluating what's going on, encouraging you to walk and grow and serve him, and reproving you if you don't. Say, oh, and he's in me. That's a motivation for growth. And what about the Holy Spirit? Well, you know 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. What? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the what? Who? Holy Spirit who's in you? And uh, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And may I add this? But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, and I think that's the word of God, are being transformed from glory to glory. Isn't that good? From glory now to even greater glory to even greater glory. And how? Even by as by the Lord, the 
Spirit. The Lord, the Spirit. Well, there are more wonderful things that God has done for you the moment you got saved. But we're going to close with those. But as you read and study your Bible, look for them, will you? It's my desire that as we have looked back to when God saved us and saw what he did back there, it will motivate you and me to say, God, I don't want to throw this away. I want to invest in this. And by the way, if you happen to be here this morning and you don't know what all this is about, and maybe you know about church and religion, but you don't know that you're saved, I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's so designed that little children can do it. Acknowledging that you're a sinner, that you deserve hell, that if you died, you would go there. But only Jesus can save you. Only he went to the cross, bore all your sin, bore all your deserved judgment and wrath from God. And God said, I'm satisfied because on the third day he raised him up. He said, now, if you will put your faith in him and trust him, you'll immediately be saved. And all these wonderful things will happen to you on a split second. Believe me, it is really a so great a salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being in church today. Tomorrow we may be home in your presence. And all these things, our position and our possessions, are found being in your Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Father, I pray two things. Anyone who's unsaved, may they put their faith in you. May they say, come into my heart, forgive my sins. Save me. I'm trusting you, Jesus. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you went to the cross and bore my sin and my deserved judgment. And on the third day, God raised you up from the dead. Come into my heart. And Lord, you've never turned somebody down who would ask you to come into their heart if they're sincere about that prayer. So I pray that those individuals would come to saving faith. And secondly, I pray for myself and the body of Christ here May we give effort to growth, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.